Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Jean Murley, who is a professor of English at Queensborough Community College and teaches classes in writing and literature, as well as teaching a master class in writing about dark subjects at the Columbia MFA nonfiction program. Dr. Murley is an acclaimed true crime expert in her book, The Rise of True Crime, 20th Century Murder in American Popular Culture, is an analysis of both historical development and current forms of the genre. She publishes regularly and gives TV, radio, and internet and print media interviews on both contemporary and historical true crime, like she'll be doing today. Her latest work is an interview titled The Long History of Missing White Woman Syndrome in the October 11th edition of The New Yorker. She's currently working on a new book about recent true crime and a crime memoir. Welcome to the show, Dr. Murley. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. I'm thrilled to be here because I always love talking about true crime. You're not alone. It's a really popular genre right now. It really is more popular than ever, especially with women. And, you know, there's, of course, we can get into this, but one of the most interesting aspects of the genre is the appeal to female readers, listeners, viewers. And it's, it's a very interesting and kind of counterintuitive phenomenon. So I'm very happy to be here. We're happy to have you. This is always something that has fascinated me as well. You know, you mentioned it being counterintuitive. You know, I have my my things that I feel compelled to read that that are intense. <laughs> yeah. But they're they're often things that relate to my life. And I'm I'm always fascinated by the the true crime watching. And I, I wonder, you know, what, what it really speaks to culturally and individually because. Right. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, it's, you know, part of it, I think, is, well, there, there's a lot to it. Part of it is, of course, individual tastes, you know, subject matters that we like or appeal to us as, as individual personalities. Some people like dark subjects, reading about horrible things that we do to each other. And some people are just really turned off by that and don't want to know, don't want to hear about it. I think that what happens for women is, is a complex, um, it's, it's a complex phenomenon that, that women love this genre. I think, first of all, the genre of true crime has always been very popular. There's no getting around the fact that many people like to read and hear about, you know, exploring the, 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 the ideas about why people do such horrible things, how they can do them, how is it possible, what kinds of psychopathologies are involved, all of those, those kinds of questions that have a broad appeal, I think. I mean, after all, the, the crime fiction genre has been, you know, probably the most popular genre in all of human history, right? But Fiction is different from true crime, of course, and there's some ethical and and moral concerns involved with our consumption of true crime. I think that for female 
audiences, true crime has has an appeal that that for me speaks to a lot of feminist issues in terms of kind of showing us in a way, almost acknowledging the harm that women are subject to. Many people point to the to the to the sort of big idea here that look, true crime is a genre that is really about a horrifying crime against women, right? And that that really is it. True crime, by and large, narrate murder, sexual assault of women. So you could look at that and say, well, you know, what's wrong with women that they want to have this repeated narrative trauma over and over and over again by consuming these these cultural products, right? These stories. But to me, true crime also composes a kind of a large-scale acknowledgement, a public acknowledgement of those harms, right? It's one of the places in our culture where, where women can say, look, this, this is real, this happens, this is outrageous. It acknowledges in, in a way the, um, the myriad hundreds of thousands of women's experiences in a small way and kind of points to, well, look, if you, if you let misogynistic violence go unchecked, the end result is murder, right? The, the logical end point of violence against women, you know, the largest, most horrifying act that a man can commit against a woman is arguably murder, right? So true crime as a genre kind of speaks to our experiences, right? And it's not that it's not that we necessarily are happy about that, but again, it's it's a place where women can be sort of validated in our almost daily in our daily lives, the harms that are that are small, the the offenses that we all have to deal with daily almost find a culmination in some true crime stories. And I think that that's a lot of the appeal. Some scholars say that there's a, there's a scholar, Amanda Vickery, who has done a study, um, kind of a survey study of women's reading habits and the kinds of true crime that, that this certain group of women that she surveyed like. And what she has found is that women seem to be drawn to the stories of not just, you know, sort of uh, describing the, the psychology of the psychopath or what have you, but stories that show women that give a kind of a, a prescription for safety in a way, right? That's so a, a story of a woman who was able to get out of, you know, zip tie handcuffs or, or something like that, and sort of using it as a way to protect ourselves, right? So you could you could also read true crime and its appeal to women as as a kind of a, um, insurance in a way. Like if you if you figure out how to avoid a, a potentially violent you know romantic partner, or if you figure out how to spot a psychopath on the first date, something something as simple as that, right? So this, this scholar, Amanda Vickery, has found that, or she posits that that's a large part of the reason why women read true crime. I'm not sure that there's such a simple relationship as, as that. You know, certainly it's interesting to read about and, 
and great to read about people who have, you know, escaped from these kinds of situations. But um, I think it's a much deeper psychological phenomenon that's going on. And I do think it speaks to, you know, kind of validating our experiences of, of harm and violence and kind of, you know, projecting it for a larger audience and saying, look, what the fuck, you know, why, why are women being killed all the time like this? Why are we subject to, you know, shitty investigations and, and misogynistic biased law enforcement officers and courts? And why is the criminal justice system so biased against women to the extent that, you know, so many rapes don't even get reported because we know we're not going to be taken seriously. We're not going to be heard. We're going to be discounted. We're going to be victim blamed. The whole process of trying to bring a sexual assault case to court is just phenomenally difficult and traumatic for victims, right? So in true crime, you can you can get those experiences validated. Yeah. It's funny, Dr. Dr. Vickery is is in my academic family, extended oh, really? family, which is funny. Yeah, I, I found her her article while doing research for this interview, and I noticed that a lot of her co-authors are related <laughs> in her attachment research. But that's that's uh, not the true crime research. But anyway, right, right. <laughs> that was just a funny fact. But um, I I think that I. Also, you know, when I think about what's going on with the the true crime focus, I think that you've really touched on something about the way that the genre feels like the natural conclusion of the daily experiences that women have. And I wonder, you know, when I think about evidence-based treatments for anxiety disorders or trauma, a lot of the time, what calms people down the most is, you know, taking the what ifs questions and answering them, just bringing them to the conclusion, you know, and I'm wondering if this is almost a form of self-soothing around the anxiety of, of violence. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible that what if, you know, what if this psychopath or whoever evades you know, evades capture or justice or, you know, I think that that's definitely a big part of what's going on here. And, you know, some people say that, or, or the kind of the flip side of that coin of, of validation and, and soothing in a way, in a backwards kind of way. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that you could make an argument that, that overconsumption of true crime narratives leads to greater anxiety. Right. And, and there is, I know for me personally, there's, there's truth to that, right? Look, if you immerse yourself in anything, you're going to see it everywhere. You're going to feel it everywhere. Right. If you want to buy um, a, a VW car and you start researching them, you're going to start seeing them everywhere. Right. So the same is not, true. not just because of the targeted ads you're going to get from your searches, not just the targeted ads <laughs> like on the street, IRL, right. You're going to right. see VWs everywhere. So the same holds true for for murder narratives. If that's all you watch, listen to, think about, read, you're going to, I think, maybe become a bit more anxious, maybe be looking for, um, maybe become a little bit paranoid in some ways, become a little more hyper aware, hyper vigilant 
to danger. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but I do think that, that, you know, true crime is a, is a weird genre, not weird, but it's a very interesting genre in that it contains so many contradictions and breeds so many contradictory impulses in, in its consumers, right? That yes, reading true crime all the time or listening to podcasts constantly can make you more anxious and more, you know, thinking that everyone's a murderer or a rapist. On the other hand, it does provide that that kind of validation and and like you said, the soothing mechanism of oh, I'm not alone. Oh, I'm right to be afraid, right? That that I'm not crazy. There are really bad men out there. Turns out, lots of them, and I need to be careful, you know. And, and in the same way, true crime also is. You know, and I, I struggle with this as someone who studies the genre and I also love the genre. There's something very, very fucked up about loving stories of someone else's extreme pain, right? Why am I drawn to reading about, you know, the worst, the absolute worst things that can happen to human beings, right? The death of a loved one, but, you know, just being murdered, right? The, pain, torture, suffering, the immense loss and the weight of grief and suffering that follows in the wake of murder or any kind of serious crime, right? Why, why do I like that? Right. But again, the contradiction to that is in in a large kind of blunt, silly way, knowledge is power, right? The more we know about what humans are capable of doing, the better off we all are. I do think that murder stories have a place in in our society in our culture we need to know these things we we need to have certainly much more transparency around law around the criminal justice system and how crimes are prosecuted how law enforcement does interrogations and and figures out you know what happened and how and why and and then follow cases through the court system i think that you know, reading and hearing and and knowing about what what we're capable of has value, right? But I I do draw a line between um, sort of what I would say used to be called the lowbrow, highbrow distinction, but now it's probably just like, uh, I don't know. But anyways, quality narratives that deal with, you know, in-depth coverage of uh, of a particular story, of a particular event or experience, right? Where you're exploring contexts and really looking at systems that have either failed or worked, where you're following people's lives and honoring those lives and not dismissing them or sensationalizing them. Those kinds of narratives have a great deal of value, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the other contradiction here is there's a lot of shitty true crime out there that disrespects victims, blames victims, trivializes, even celebrates and glorifies violence and, and certainly figures like serial killers and, you know, people like that who have become almost iconic, right? Like Ted Bundy or, um, you know, John Wayne Gacy or any of those, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, those big sort of really horrifyingly disturbing kinds of killers, right? So, you know, the the distinction I think is very important. I also think that as the genre has become more popular recently, certainly since the advent of podcasts, 
more people are becoming educated, not just about crime itself, but about true crime as a genre, right? So that people are much more aware of, you know, the fact that some of the podcasts are really shitty, right? It's a couple of women talking and joking with each other and drinking and ha 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 ha. Oh, let's talk about a murder, right? That kind of stuff, which is just the most base to me, disgusting types of murder narratives or presentations of murder narratives versus something like In the Dark, which the first season took a very, very deep and nuanced, highly intelligent look at child abduction and why a case in the, I think it was the 80s, took so very long to solve when the the perpetrator lived basically a couple of towns over from the victim, right? Took like 30 years to solve that case or something. So I think that people are becoming more savvy about the genre itself. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're becoming much more nuanced and discerning kind of customers of it. And I think that's good. I think that's good. So I do want to get to Gabby Petito, but you said something that made me think about like a parallel the way I interact with this kind of content. Because like, if someone asked me like, do you like true crime? And I'd be like, maybe it's not like my top thing. You know, I, I guess I've read a couple of books or shows or whatever, but what it made me think of is like growing up in the eighties, like I was not aware of this stuff, but my parents were kind of seeped in the whole like satanic panic. Like they weren't like really into it, but right. I know that my mom saw a couple episodes of Geraldo here, a couple of Oprah Winfrey there. <laughs> and I think it freaked her out, you know? So she had me watch, like, Disney made this Winnie the Pooh Too Smart for Strangers special. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on YouTube. It's terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Wow. It's basically when they had that, like, live action animatronic show. I don't know if it was animatronics or people in costumes of the Winnie the Pooh characters telling kids, don't talk to strangers run away. There's a part where Tigger tells kids to like kick and bite and scream if someone's like grabs you. Wow. And like they had these really spooky vignettes, like reenactment of like kids saying no and running away from strangers who like pull up or follow them in an alleyway and stuff like that. I know it's scary. Wow. I, I was like four. I was like, scared the ever loving shit out of me, but I kept watching. I wanted to keep renting that video and watching it over and over again because I was scared, yeah. but I was like, pay attention. Like Winnie the Pooh's telling me how to run away from a child molester, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and 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 so I had that in my brain from a very, very young age. And then when I was in college and the, the HBO movie Indictment with James Woods came out about the McMartin preschool trial, I yeah. stayed up, it came on at like midnight and me and my roommate stayed up and watched it for like two and a half hours or however long that movie is. Yeah. And I was obsessed. And that like, I started like reading all about satanic panic and I like read the, there was like two books, then there's more now. I read so much about it and I kind of became like retroactively obsessed with like, what made my parents scare me about this? Oh, this is what the media was putting in their heads, you know? So like right. I, I became really interested in the meta narrative. Like, why did my parents think this was a thing? And then like reading all that kind of stuff, it was really interesting and kind of like, um, like a parallel to what goes on with, with adult women now, like we know we're at risk. And so this media can be very, very captivating. You know, in that, in that same vein, it was, you gave such a rich answer. There's so much to dive into and it, it really, where my mind went was, you know, I, I realized, you know, when I, 
I was, you know, a, a little punk rock teen and I was super into the misfits. And when you were talking about this, like kind of male obsession with the killers in a certain way, it got me thinking about how men interact with the genre through murder ballads and, you know, thinking about yeah. in a cave and, and kind of this uh, narrative from the perspective of the killer in, in a lot of ways, musically and historically. Uh, right. And that, that's fascinating to me as well. You know, I think it's funny because I, I do kind of still love the misfits because they kind of got in at, at the right age. I think if I right. heard them for the first time now, I'd be like disgusted. And right. also, I mean, like that whole band is, has not aged well. <laughs> 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 which you know is not surprising when you look at what they started with so anyway <laughs> but as a teenager I think there was something about like the developing of empathy that I did not have yet <laughs> I remember as a as a young teen in the early internet I would go to to rotten.com and and look at images of dead bodies and yep. I remember yep. very vividly there was like an image that I found really funny that I'm not going to describe, even though I remember it very well. And I remember showing it to my brother and being like, look at how funny this is. And he started crying. Whoa. And something in that moment occurred to me where it's like, oh, this is somebody's death. You know, when yeah. I saw someone else's reaction, he was a few years older. Right. And so I, I think, I think it was something about developmentally, Right. He was able to to connect to that image in a very different way. Yeah. And, and you weren't, yeah. And I think that something really changed in me in that in that moment. And I I will forever remember that, you know. It, it was really fascinating. But just the the ways that we view death as entertainment, you know, as, as much as I want to distance myself from it because I'm not a murderino, like <laughs> there are ways that in my life I have connected to this and, and, you know, it, it's fascinating, you know, I can sit here and say, you know, I don't understand, yeah. but I do understand in, in more ways than, than I'm connected to. And, and that was something that I connected to while, while hearing you discuss this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think there's that that's very human, right? The, the multitude of ways that people respond to death and respond to images and descriptions of, of death and, you know, what, what comes, it's not just determined by age as, as you're suggesting, right. Of kind of a development of your uh, a sense of empathy and, and like that, but you know, there, there, there is a, a thing. Gallows humor is a thing, right. It's, it's real. It's, you know, I think there's a way in which you could say that, the gallows humor that, and the whatever dark humor that, that we, that many of us, including me, you know, prompts us to kind of laugh at, at an image of gore and death that's real. That is a, a, a kind of a, um, a natural response to the ways in which we're inundated with that stuff, right? You know, people always talk about, oh, we're not as close to death as we used to be when we all lived on farms and saw our sheep being slaughtered and then it was on the dinner table kind of thing or the relative dying and then you dig the grave and put the body in. But there's another way in which we're closer to death now than ever. Why? Because images of death are 
con- we're constantly bombarded with them in media, right? So, and it's there's a distance to that, of course, that we're not, you know, thankfully, most of us are are not ambulance drivers or whatever, or EMTs, we're not subjected, most people to actual death on a daily basis. But the images that we all consume or are subjected to certainly bring it to us in a way that I think does desensitize us and makes us more have that more ironic, cool sensibility about it, maybe as a protective mechanism or just as like, oh my God, I can't deal with this. So I'll just laugh about it. Right. So that is a a thing in true crime as well, that, that, um, you know, interesting way in which we have desensitized ourselves to imagery and descriptions of, of graphic bodily death and destruction and horror and there's there's a way in which we're kind of always looking for oh what's next right what's the the next worst biggest killer or we're obsessed with numbers of of people that have been killed by a particular serial killer or, or something like that the the higher the number the greater the kind of interest and and fascination i think it's because we're just so inured to to death and murder and violence. I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad, but it just is. So I wanted to ask you about the, the topic of the article we, we discussed in your intro, which um, right. <clears throat> is the, the murder of Gabby Petito and how the way that the media coverage of uh, her murder and the public reaction to it kind of bring up the, the topics of both like the meta narrative around true crime and also the idea of missing white women syndrome. Would you care to speak to that? Yeah, sure. I think that definitely the Gabby Petito case brought the issues of disparate coverage, disparate media coverage and disparate resources devoted to solving a crime brought it really front and center. Like we could not ignore this any longer. And it's something that people like me have been aware of for a very long time that you know, it's just a fact. Most murder in this country, most murder victims in this country are young men of color. That's just a fact, right? Most perpetrators are young men, right? So, you know, to see the outsized coverage of this young, pretty, charismatic white woman, it just, we couldn't ignore the issue anymore that True crime is a genre of whiteness. It's preoccupied with the murder of young, you know, beautiful or pretty women. And there's something really wrong about that, right? There's something really wrong about that because, of course, it's not just about media coverage. It's about law enforcement resources. Like, why was the whole state of Florida looking for Brian Laundrie in that stupid fucking park, right? This is just one person who maybe killed one person, right? You can bet that those kinds of resources are not devoted to ordinary murder, right? And and why is that? Really, why is class, race? It's about income inequality. And, And that case brought those issues, you know, right to the front of our consciousness. And I'm glad, I'm glad for that, you know? And I don't, I'm not saying that the murder of young, beautiful white women should not be, you know, should be ignored. Certainly not. But 
I am saying that true crime skews our understanding of what murder is about. And it helps to create more inequality of resources. It, it really does. It leads to the idea that, you know, the number one homicide problem in our country right now is the murder of young white women. And that's just not the case, right? Never has been, hopefully never will be. And again, I'm not saying that the murder of women is not a problem. It's a huge problem, but the, the economic forces and the media forces that cause us to think that that's the number one problem that in itself is a problem, right? We need to be paying much more attention to the real homicide, the real homicide problem that we have, which is gun violence, right? It's not, you know, a serial killer choosing victims and then getting all books written about him and, and all that kind of th- all that kind of stuff. I also wanted to make a, a note that we're recording this on November third. November 20th is Transgender Day of Remembrance, yep. where, you know, GLAAD and other organizations collect data on murdered transgender people who are who are murdered disproportionately and, and face a lot of the same issues and are predominantly women of color yep. as well. And it's actually very difficult to collect data on the murder of transgender women because it's frequently reported in ways that misgender the victim. If it's reported at all. Exactly. And so in in crime statistics, even if it's not reported in the media, it's not recorded properly. This kind of intersectional violence, the vast majority of trans people murdered are transgender women of color. Right, right. And nobody is writing books and articles about those victims and exploring their lives and the context of their lives. And well, trans people are. (laughs) Trans people are, right. But I mean in the in the larger media landscape, right? right? When's the last time there was a bestseller, a true crime bestseller about a murdered trans woman of color? Right. Can you say never? (laughs) Hmm. Right. So hopefully this will change. And it is hopeful that awareness is being brought to bear on these things, these issues. And, you know, I welcome and and hope for more coverage of these kinds of murders and these, you know, marginalized communities who are who are facing enormous pain and loss. Right. That needs to be vocalized and those people need to be seen and heard. So, yeah, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that. Things like the Gabby Petito event, events, media coverage, awareness is growing about the about the um, this issue that not all murder is equal, basically. And I've written about this true crime is it's actually something of a of a quasi fantasy genre, right? If you really think about the types of crimes that get covered creates uh, an impression that is just not, it's just not factual. It's not real is, is very skewed. So how many books have been written about Ted Bundy? And yeah, he was certainly an aberration and worthy of study and thinking about and figuring out 
how the system failed and, you know, and, and all these kinds of things and, and how at that time law enforcement was, was not, you know, if a, if a woman went missing in the seventies, a young woman, it was more likely that the, the local officer would say, well, just, just to the family would say, she probably ran away with her boyfriend. Right. And so a lot of those cases did not get investigated until well after the fact, and it was too late. So, but back to this idea of the different amounts of coverage and true crime as it's somewhat of a fantasy genre, true crime, I think up until very recently has given the, the impression that there's many, 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 many serial killers out there preying on us and that these kinds of crimes are very common and that this is where our resources and our, and our attention need to be devoted. And that's just not true, right? Your, your chances of being murdered by a serial killer are very, very small. Your chances of being in an abusive relationship, in a physically violent relationship, are actually pretty high, right? So that is something that I, I think with more attention being paid to those issues of, again, the, the if you want to do a comparison, like the smaller harms that women endure and are subject to, domestic violence or, or intimate partner violence versus murder, right? But the genre is calling attention to issues like intimate partner violence, issues like, you know, the, the vast number of sexual assaults that go unreported, ignored, you know, by law enforcement, et cetera. So, so yeah, it's, it's, um, I hope that the genre is kind of as a genre waking up. I see signs that it is. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> I was just thinking the the two books that I can think of that I've read about domestic violence and, and murder are very academic and, and they're not necessarily written like very sensational for like a general audience. Like the ones I was thinking of are abusive endings by Molly Drakowitz and uh, down girl by Kate Mann. Both of them talk a lot about women being murdered by their partners, but they did took me read, a while to get through. Did you read No Visible Bruises by no. Rachel Snyder? That's an amazing book about intimate partner violence and the ways in which our, uh, we, we deal with it so inadequately. And it's just a really great book pointing towards different, different systems that could be created to deal with it much more effectively and the ways in which it has, you know, over and over and over again, failed women and allowed men to keep perpetrating. I wanted to ask you about serial and it's kind of like a two-part question about that podcast. And I guess like, like the first part is, well, I guess I just want to admit that it's kind of like an aberration in that, in that one, both the victim and the perpetrator weren't white. Yeah. And the, like, I guess like my two-part question is like, my first part of the question is like, do you think, it did any good in getting people to question the criminal justice system. And the second part is seasons two and three of that show went in completely different directions. Like I thought season two was just as good, if not better. It was about Bo Bergdahl and his captivity by the Taliban. And it was so good. And I was glued to my seat. I have chills just thinking about that, but it's also because he's alive to tell the tale. And season three was uh she just went to I a snags. courthouse in a in a city <laughs> mm-hmm. and 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 she chronicled people who were using public defenders and she spoke to public defenders and how hard it is to get justice for like minor crimes and stuff 
And like, I guess, so my second part of the question is like, how come those seasons weren't as interesting or weren't as popular? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's built in, it's, it's the subject matter, right? It's the subject matter. Nobody wants to hear about the failures, the small granular failures that happen to ordinary people, right? Uh, On a daily basis at a courthouse, it's dreary, it's depressing, it's demoralizing, right? It was, but it felt so I mean, important. Like it feels important, right? But to but to the, look, there's something in the human psyche that we we crave. I think we crave a sort of focal point for our outrage and our disgust and despair instead of a multiplicity, a sort of spreading out of here's one little horrible story, then another little horrible story, and then another and another, on and on and on. That's just too much to deal with. Whereas Adnan Syed and Hyman Lee, there I can really get into that, right? There, that's two, just two people I have to care about, invest in, empathize with. So I think there's a way in which true crime really is good at focusing our feelings and our emotional responses, right? It's it's the whole like, catharsis thing from from the greeks right fear and pity we fear this happening we know it's awful all those you know the the huge upswelling of of despair and anxiety and and just you know outrage and disgust at the system at the person at whatever and then we also pity them and then we get to walk away basically unscathed, right? So we can have this intense emotional experience, invest our emotions into these people, and then just go make dinner and walk the dog and go to bed and everything's fine in our lives. So true crime offers us that vicarious, intense experience without really harming us at all. I do think Serial brought so much really necessary outstanding attention to the problem of wrongful conviction. And Rabia Chowdhury has written a book about that, started her own podcast. She's fantastic. And um, she's absolutely right in her position about true crime is that it sheds light on these injustices within our system, that people wouldn't really know about this stuff if it weren't for serial and books about wrongful conviction cases and other podcasts like the Curtis Flowers case that was covered in in the dark part two, right? Yeah, I think Serial did a, a hell of a lot of good. I also see the ways in which, again, yes, Hyman Lee was not white, but she was pretty and charismatic and everybody loved her and and, you know, all this kind of thing. Like we get to have that wonderful female victim, right? For lack of a better of a better term, right? These, in, in some ways, these are characters from fiction, the evildoer and the innocent maiden, right? The, the sort of Rapunzel who needs to be rescued or at least justice needs to be brought to bear for her after her untimely death, right? These are, these are fictional characters. And that's another way in which true crime partakes of kind of a fictional universe of meaning and character development right? Elements from fiction are used to tell true crime stories. And that's part of why they work and have so much appeal because they are stories and they are characters that we can connect with and identify with and, 
And it's just wonderful. We love, we love stories, right? We crave stories. And it gets murky because these are real people, but they are still in the best kinds of true crime. And this starts with Capote and in Cold Blood, he fictionalized so many of those characters and imbued them with a depth and a meaning that they may or may not have had. Certainly they had depth as people, but as he turned them into fictional characters that readers could really relate to in in all kinds of different ways. One of the funny things about true crime is that when we use that term, we're not talking about stories about school shootings or stories about terrorism or stories about, you know, Bo Bergdahl. We're talking about the murder of young white, usually white women, right? And that is, that's the name of the game, right? People, for a variety of reasons, um, just are drawn to those stories because true crime gives us one, usually one victim, one perpetrator, sometimes multiple victims, but it allows us to, allows us to focus our deep feelings of pain and sadness and grief and loss and horror and, and despair and fear. It allows us to focus those feelings in a way that is manageable right? We, we can't feel for 3,000 victims of the World Trade Center at, at once, right? We, yeah, those, those books and, and stuff, but for that very reason, they are not considered true crime. So I think the Bo Bergdahl story was a good case in point. Yes, it was one person, but it didn't fit the template. It didn't scratch that itch for one victim, one perpetrator. This might be a little bit off topic, but what you were talking about, about like you have the real people and then you have like, even though it's true crime, the fictional version of them that's presented in the media. It made me think of that book. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called The Hot One by Carolyn Mernick. Yeah, and it's I haven't about read it. Yeah. The death of Ashley Ellerin. And it's about a woman whose childhood best friend was murdered and she hadn't seen her in about a year. And before that, they hadn't seen each other in like five or 10 years. And right. how her friend had been dating Ashton Kutcher at the time. And like, she had seen all this media coverage that her like best friend was just being covered as like Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend. And so she kind of like went and like almost inserted herself into the investigation. And she was like, she testified at the trial and the book is so strange because like you feel this woman's pain about the loss of her friend, but the murder doesn't really have anything to do like with her, you know what I'm saying? And it's so strange because like, this was actually a person that she really cared about, you know? And she almost like, I don't know if this is the right word, but it's almost like about her parasocial relationship, not with the real friend, but with the idea of the person who died, like in the media, you know what I'm saying? I have a lot of mixed feelings about that book, but I think it's an interesting example of, of what you were talking about. Well, yeah. And that's, that brings up the, the, the fact that there's more true crime now being written by people whose relatives were murdered, right? Or friends, loved ones, families of victims are writing their own narratives now. And I think that's another positive direction that the genre is going into, which is that in the past, true crime has sort of silenced the victim in some very real ways. Well, first of all, the victim is not there to speak for herself or himself, but 
there's ways in which the genre sort of historically has, again, fictionalized, particularly the victim. It's the narrative of innocence versus evil. And that is the template, that's the appeal of these older true crime narratives that you've got the victim who has become memorialized and sort of idealized precisely because she's she's gone, right? And because that that confluence of, of intense feelings of sadness and grief collect around the victim, you know, we don't we don't want to remember or speak about a victim as, you know, maybe losing her temper or being an asshole or, you know, kicking the dog, right? Nobody wants to hear that. We want to hear about how she brought meals to the homeless shelter on Thanksgiving and, and that kind of stuff. The, the idea of she lit up a room, you hear that over and over and over again, right? She was the kind of person who lit up a room when she walked in. Well, you know, in some ways, who doesn't? In some ways, big deal, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's interesting that more, and I think, again, very a very positive direction for the genre to go into is moving away from that sort of blunt narrative of innocence versus evil and these sort of stick figures in a way clashing and the conflict is is ends up with murder now you've got exploration of contexts exploration of systems explorations of the reverberations of serious violent crime in someone's family friends neighbors communities right and so i think that's a, that's a way an interesting direction that the genre seems to be moving in there's been great narratives written by um daughters of murdered moms right my friend sarah perry wrote a book called after the eclipse about the murder of her mom when she was 12 years old and how she dealt with it what it meant also exploring the inadequacies of the criminal justice system from a feminist perspective and looking at the ways in which her mother was maligned because she was a single mom in a small town in Maine when she was murdered, right? So examining those, the issues of the ways that misogyny informs our telling of these stories, true crime allows for that as well. So in many ways, true crime is an expansive genre. You can tell different types of stories within the genre, and that's what's happening now. And I think that those stories are gaining more interest and more readers. Again, as we become more savvy consumers of the genre, we see its shortcomings and its failures and its biases, biases rather. And, you know, people, artists, creators of content are stepping up to fill those voids and say, hey, what about this? What about the fact that, you know, this woman lived with her husband for 25 years and he kept back, kept beating the shit out of her and nobody did anything. And then she ended up murdered, right? Those kinds of stories, I think are, are coming, they're being told more frequently. And I think it's really good. When you were describing the way that we flatten victims into these, you know, one dimensional like, characters. Yeah. yeah. These like virginal virtuous, you know, perfect characters it kind of made me think of the concept of like sacrificial lambs and and that kind of right. historical story of 
like we are protected by slaughtering our innocent in some ways. <laughs> and Ooh, I'm that's wondering a good if angle. that's kind of picking up on some sort of historical itch that we've been scratching because, uh, you know, uh, with these stories. <laughs> that's a really interesting thing, Karen. I've never thought about it that way, but I'm going to. <laughs> Now that you put me onto that, I mean, cite me, cite me. <laughs> I will. I certainly will. Look, there's That's so that H index. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many emotions invested in this genre that it's not surprising that there would be that kind of angle to it, right? And and then there's the whole angle of, you know, in in many in most older forms, and I'll say older by mid 20th to end of 20th century, those types of narratives usually followed a certain formula, right? Murder, backing up, looking at context to a greater or lesser degree, psychology of the killer, pursuit of the killer, and then conviction and punishment, right? So that it's tied up in a tidy package for us, right? It reassures us that criminal justice system works. Yes, horrible things happen, but, you know, the, the perpetrator is caught and punished adequately and yada, 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 right? So in those types of narratives, John Wayne Gacy is caught. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is, ends up killed, murdered in prison, right? Yay, because he was a terrible person. So we get to partake of all those emotions of outrage and anger and, and the system is disturbed by a murder happening, then we get to see dogged investigator pursues the, the killer and, and, you know, is finally dragged, drags him to justice. And it's a reassurance, right? And that, that does, it allows us an outlet for, for those kinds of emotions that, that need an outlet, frankly, right? Your idea here of the, of the, the narrative also providing us with the with the kind of a, a more ritualized idea that certainly resonates because the narratives have been so similar right over and over and over again we hear about the outraged innocent being slaughtered by the monster psychopath and then the psychopath himself gets put to death Right. And that's a very old story. You're absolutely right about that. And it's one that we crave and almost need in a way. What's happening now with these different types of stories being told, it's almost like we've moved beyond the need for that. I like to think we're becoming smarter all the time, although I know that's kind of a what teleological position, but whatever. I like to believe in the goodness of people and, and that we're getting better, right? But, you know, it remains the case that those, those kinds of stories do serve a, an important function. And, you know, it gets messy, of course, because we're not talking about fiction. We're talking about real pain and suffering and, and horror. Messy equals interesting for someone like me. I was also thinking a bit about how, uh, like, I'm wondering, just, the the audience somewhat shifting in who they identify as in the story. And it seems like lately they're identifying as the dogged detective, you know, that they're yeah. they're yeah. taking on that role. Certainly. And this is a this is a new 
a new phenomenon of the, of, you know, we've always had armchair sleuths, but it's never been so easy and fun since we've had the internet. Right. So, you know, and there's some value in that, you know, yeah, I know that the, the cops will say, oh, these people just get in the way, you know, they screw up investigations and they, they let information out that shouldn't be let out and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, sometimes social media works like in the Gabby Petito case, it was those people who saw, uh, what's his name's van, Brian Laundry's van, who kind of led the way to the discovery of her, of her body, right? So, you know, and that's also an old thing with the Adam Walsh, the Adam Walsh case, who his, his father, John Walsh, Adam Walsh was a, a, a little boy, I think he was five, and he was abducted and murdered in the late 70s, I believe. And his dad, John Walsh, went on to create America's Most Wanted, right? That long running show that has actually helped to apprehend many perpetrators and and bad guys and murderers and and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's definitely an old phenomenon of people wanting to get into these things. It also speaks to, I think, that there's a growing consciousness of the inadequacy of law enforcement, right? And the fact that you know, it's not that they're bad or fucked up or that they don't want to do their jobs. It's that we don't fund. That's debatable. (laughs) Well, uh, for the most part, I think the system is definitely so deeply flawed, mostly the system of training and the fact that there's no regularized training. There's no standardized training. There's like, I don't know, 19,000 different um, law enforcement organizations in this country and they all do things differently. And that's a lot of myths around forensic science. Lots of junk science, right? Mm -hmm. Although that's being exposed with, again, certain true crime narratives and certainly the work of the Innocence Project and the growing, excellent growing awareness of wrongful conviction. But it's not that I think, look, I think that most, I would say the majority of people who go into law enforcement actually want to do some good, right? What happens is that people enter a culture which is so fucked up, a culture of law enforcement, which is so racist and misogynist. And the individual person who wants to help ends up being silenced, marginalized, given shitty assignments if she speaks up, right? Not promoted. It's a whole system that beats the good out of anybody who wants to do good for other people, right? So if you want to be a cop, don't. <laughs> don't do it. If you want to help, I don't know, figure out a way to help your neighbors or something. I don't know. But it's the culture of policing in this country and it, it and it's the training that is so bad and so ridiculously inadequate, you know, and it's the resources as well. Why are we spending, you know, why are cops armed with um, outsized you know, tanks and military leftover surplus military equipment and shit like that, when they should be spending their resources or resources should be devoted to, you know, actually solving murders instead of breaking down alleged drug dealers' doors. Who gives a shit, right? It's the murderers they should be going after. It's the creation of systems that more adequately deal with domestic violence. It's the the fact that laws need to be changed to protect women and children, not to let abusive men keep offending right or pedophiles but how do you do that when they are the police 
When who are the police? The abusive husbands. Oh, well, right. That's another issue too, right? There's so many people in law enforcement who are abusive. I think that speaks to not just the badness of those men, but the systems that they're caught within, right? Look, if you think about it from a cop's perspective, and trust me, I am not pro-police. I am pro-people. I am pro-human beings. But what I see is that, again, if you're a decent person and you go into law enforcement and you think you want to help people, what you're subjected to is the worst of humanity on a daily basis. No mental health support, no support for, for trauma that you've endured over and over and over again. And you're riding around in a car with another person and it becomes an us against them scenario. The inadequacy of training, the inadequacy of mental health support for people who who are in those jobs, the inadequacy of basic training around if you're a white cop in in a neighborhood, predominantly people of color, don't walk around with a mentality that it's us versus them. Those kinds of things are not addressed. I think that that's where the problem lies. How do you do it? I don't know, right? But the resources are inadequate or are disproportionately devoted to armaments, guns, weaponry, these stupid cop cars with these, these the noise that's supposed to drive you away and all this kind of shit, right? And the, the, the problems, the real problems are not addressed. So I think that law enforcement is a system that doesn't protect ordinary people and that it chews up and spits out good people. So we've, we've talked about this, I think, conceptually, but the phrase uh, missing white women syndrome is kind of becoming more, I think there's a lot more cultural awareness around it. Yeah. Lately. And so what do you think that people are kind of taking away from this? Wait, before we before we get to that question, there's one more thing I want to say about law enforcement. Go for it. And it is this. It is that I was married to a, a German police officer and I learned a lot about about cops from him. And one of the things I learned is that the very language of American policing has to do with force and has to do with violence. In Germany, the police are called public security, right? They're not called law enforcement officers. So there's a very real way in which American policing from the very start has been about force. And and specifically, you know, Capturing escaped slaves. Specifically capturing escaped slaves, right? That That is a well-known to people who are educated about it phenomenon, right? That the police started with these fugitive patrols to specifically, yeah, to capture, capture. And re-enslave free people. And re-enslave free people, exactly. So the idea of force, the idea of capture, the idea of, of violence is written into, sort of encoded in the DNA of of policing in this country. And I think that that needs to change. I have no idea how to change it. Systems change is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. But certainly it starts with bringing awareness to it. 
I do think that societies need somehow some mechanism to keep us safe because look, there are bad people out there, right? That's just a fact. But what I see in our country and our law enforcement professionals is the idea that they have to be violent. And that has been in, in the in the heart and soul of, of policing in this country from day one. And that's that's really what what the problem is for me, right? That we need to be much more aware of the ways in which violence is encoded into the idea of policing in this country. So now let's talk about that second question, which was, again, you know, the concept of missing white woman syndrome becoming something that we're more culturally aware of. You know, I think that it's something that activists have talked about and and people in the genre may have talked about, but I think now it's, it's a, in the cultural lexicon. So where did, where does that come from? And, and is it the Gabby Petito case that's really gotten us talking about that more broadly, culturally, and then kind of what, what Definitely. do we do with that awareness? So where is that bringing us? Where is that bringing us? I don't know. Remains to be seen to a better place, I hope. You know, this this actually, I started to, to hear people speaking about this on a podcast that I really don't like and have a lot of problems with, I'm not going to name it, but it has to do with two women making jokes and then telling true crime stories, figure it out. But they actually did. I got the context clues. (laughs) (laughs) Those two women podcasters did a great thing a few years ago when they first started. And to their credit, they make corrections. They do really shoddy research. But, you know, they're not researchers, they're storytellers and they're humorists and, you know, let them off the hook a bit for that. But to their credit, they respond to critiques and when people point out that they've made grave errors or that they're doing something wrong or using the wrong language, right? So instead of hookers and prostitutes, they now use the term sex workers. So early on... Wait, but like... You can change terminology, but do they do they speak towards decriminalization? Do they speak towards liberation for sex workers? Have they changed the way they tell their narratives or have they just changed the word they use with the same know. impact? <laughs> I don't know. I know that they are very, very liberal in some ways, mm-hmm. right? I don't listen to them enough to know that, right? But changing language is a start. Certainly, especially for ordinary viewer from Middle America, ordinary listener from Middle America, who is now aware that you shouldn't call sex workers hookers. I mean, it's a start. It's a start. So, what I wanted to say about awareness of missing white woman syndrome is that early on, a listener called their attention to the fact that they were covering largely because again, true crime is a a genre of whiteness. They were covering mostly white victim stories, right? And so they, they brought that issue up, talked about it, talked about what they could do differently and have made those kinds of adjustments, right? So they responded to positively to that kind of criticism. That's the first time that I really heard that issue being spoken about publicly 
you know, in a podcast. Of course, I've known about it for years and people have written about it. Well, yeah, but you have a PhD. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) So I'm in, you know, in that genre and I Mm -hmm. know what people say. But it, but it entered the, the lexic, like the cultural lexicon, the broader cultural right. lexicon. Right. It was brought into the cultural lexicon and, and public consciousness, I think, first with that podcast. And I think that's a good thing. And other podcasts, definitely, when podcasting first started about, what, 10 years ago now, people of color who were doing their podcasts and, and noticing this and talking about it and, and talking about true crime cases, uh, you know, that weren't being given the same treatments by the white content creators, the missing and murdered indigenous women's and children's project, right. Which started about 10 years ago, roughly again, calling attention to victims of color, indigenous women and children. Right. And so that has been sort of bubbling up in various ways, but I do think that the Gabby Petito, you know, case really called attention to it in a much bigger way. I know you said that you, you don't know where it's going, but where, where do you hope we go with this kind of information being broadly understood about the disproportionate coverage of whiteness in a, an area that disproportionately affects people of color. Right, right. I mean, my dream would be that the genre remakes itself. The genre remakes itself to, to hold up and tell the stories of people who heretofore have been silenced, right? I think one of the best true crime, and I'm using scare quotes, TV series that's ever been is called the first 48. I don't even know if that show is still on. I don't get network TV, but it was, or is a show that follows real detectives in real time, investigating real cases. Right. And what you learned from that show is that most murder is sort of pitiably small in a way, if I can use that language. And what I mean by that is that most murder intimate might be a a term happens. Not necessarily intimate, but, but in circumstances that are so ordinary and so sort of um, so ordinary, Like like what mundane, mundane, every day in people's ordinary experience, Mm. right? Somebody disrespects somebody else's girlfriend and, you know, ends up getting shot, right? A robbery goes, goes badly, you know, um, gang shootings, gang killings certainly are a, a big, horrible thing that that happened frequently right just kind Um, of issues of escalation for daily interactions right it's an escalation of ordinary interactions and that's what most murder is about and it's not interesting to tv audiences right i would love for true crime to find a way to make those types of murders interesting only 
insofar as it calls attention to those problems and posits solutions for or de-escalation tactics in some way, right? I would love for true crime to follow some of the anti-violence initiatives that have been created in this country that nobody knows about, right? I would love for true crime to follow wrongful conviction, the overturning of wrongful convictions from point A. Like serial. Like serial, although they didn't really overturn. Oh, yes, but they did bring attention to it. They brought attention to it, but... But that's the kind of direction I would like to see true crime moving in. I would love for true crime to to narrate stories about women getting away from and succeeding in their lives out of a bad domestic abuse situation, right? Instead of it ending in murder, ending in a a woman thriving, right? I don't know if true crime is ever going to do that, but in my dreams, that's what true crime would, would do and would be. Yeah, I think that that's a laudable dream. I I also, on the flip side, you know, have this fear that it just becomes a bunch of white women sensationalizing the violence against people of color, you know, Absolutely. which is also a potential outcome, which Absolutely. is, which would, I hope is, is not the way it ends up. I hope so too. I hope so too. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you for asking me. Oh, I'm thrilled to talk to you anytime, Dr. Murley. (laughs) Same here. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to read more of your work or interact with you? That is a very good question. I mean, always you can email me at jmurley dot qcc dot cuny dot edu that's my edu Mm -hmm. you can just google me i don't really have a website right now i should get one (laughs) i really hate things like that so i am working on a new book about the last 20 years of true crime because my book was published in 2007 and so much has happened since then in the world of true crime and i am writing a new book I don't know when it will come out, but it's in the works. Is there a working title? Not yet, but okay. there, will be soon. there will be soon. And I will make a lot of noise about it as soon as I get my shit together. Um, Where will the noise be made? <laughs> Where um, should people look for updates? Just put, type your name into... Just type Indie my name. Bound. Into <laughs> yeah. any search engine and hopefully something will pop up soon that is good and you know all right you can find me on twitter at uh karen u-h-k-a-r-e-n and you can find elizabeth at miss cherry pie like the number pie and we'll see you next time you've been listening to the feminist coffee hour podcast tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. 
Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.